Our scripture reading today is Acts 4, 1 through 22. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders of the, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Ananias, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to tr try to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before I begin, I just want to just acknowledge the loss of our our brother Rufus this morning, who died uh, last Friday, and just we're praying for you all. We're glad you're here, and we, we look ahead to, to honoring Rufus' life, to celebrating it, to, to mourning his loss uh, this Saturday. So Elizabeth will have a little bit more information about that service and the announcements. We're in an Easter season. We're moving through the book of Acts. We started out uh, this Easter season in the book of Mark, 
in this dark little cave where there was uh, just a couple, just a few women who, who were given this message of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, and we talked about this, as a, this was a powerful, potent message that the angel gave them. But now we're starting, as we move through the book of Acts, this message is starting to spread. It's kind of, it started out as a few people, starting to spread like wildfire now. And in just a short time, this small community of Jesus' disciples has now grown over to over 5,000 people. And the main person who we've seen is proclaiming this is Peter. And, and what I want to do today is I want to take a look. Hey, Rich, there's a bunch of feedback coming. Is there any way we could... What I want to... That's, that's a lot better. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what I want to do today is I want to look closer at this proclamation of resurrection. I think we see three things in this passage regarding this proclamation. It's a saving proclamation, it's an exclusive proclamation, and it's a costly proclamation. So a saving, an exclusive, and a costly. If you want to follow along, we're in Acts 4. We pick up, actually, if you're here with us last week, we're picking up off the same story. There's this man He's been uh, a lame beggar since birth. He was miraculously healed by Peter in the name of Jesus. At the end of this passage, we actually find out uh, he was 40 years old. And uh, there's these crowds that were at the temple. They, uh, they're astonished by this miracle. They come running. Peter uses this as a, as a way of preaching a sermon. And, and there's many that come to believe. They're amazed by this. But the religious leaders don't like this. They... The priest and the police captain and the Sadducees don't like this, and so uh, they're disturbed by what Peter and John are doing. They're more, they're more literally annoyed, I think is a better translation there. And so they arrest them and, and have them put in jail for the evening. So, so part of what's annoying them is this message that they're preaching. They're, they're preaching about resurrection. The Sadducees, they rejected this. They're a Jewish sect at the time. They believed that at death, uh, the body and the soul died together. A lot of the other Jewish people, they would have believed in resurrection, but when they talked about resurrection, they talked about a general resurrection at the end of time. This idea that one person was resurrected in the middle of history just did not, was not on their radar. So there's, there's a couple things that people in power don't like. The, the crowds are stirred up. Like there's this, maybe there's going to be riots. There's disorder in the temple. There's, they're not teaching the party line. And so, so they move in to shut down Peter's sermon. Uh, and then the next day, they're taken before the Sanhedrin. This is the supreme legal and religious court for the Jews. Uh, and they begin to question, hey, what, what, by what power, whose name are you doing this? Like, who, who, do you, who exactly do you think you are? As I mentioned, these, these religious leaders, are, they're annoyed. They're, I think the, the most pesky thing about this whole thing is that there's this 40-year-old guy who's standing next to Peter and John. Like, this, this is kind of like, if you think about them being on trial, this is kind of exhibit A of the trial. This, they'd love for this pesky little 40-year-old not to be there that was miraculously healed, but they, they can't do that. He's standing right there. So they have to ask him, so how did you do this? And probably what they're getting at is, by whose authority did you do this? Like, was it sorcery? Was it magic? We're kind of reminded in Mark, we saw when Jesus cast out a demon and immediately he's accused of casting out a demon by the power of a demon. So if you remember, Jesus is kind of like, that's completely illogical. That makes no sense. And Peter kind of pulls a page from Jesus' playbook here and says, 
Let me get this straight. We're on trial for showing kindness to this man who was lame. Okay. Well, if you must know, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. So, so notice here, this is interesting. So Peter not only answers the question, but he, but he uh, uh, you know, they're asking, hey, what, what power did Jesus buy? Well, it's the power name of Jesus Christ. But he's turning the tables on him. So now Peter's charging them with something. Peter's saying, hey, you rejected this cornerstone. In other words, the, the judge, the judges are being judged. And if there's something that people in power don't like, they don't like that. Like people in power are not typically used to being judged. See, Peter and John have been arrested by the, the captain of the temple police. They're, they're standing in probably in front of the most elite, powerful group in their culture you could imagine. This is rulers and elders and teachers of the law and high priests and, and the high priest family. I don't know, that doesn't sound intimidating to us. It's not our culture. I was imagining myself as a kid in school like hearing my name come over the announcement box, come to the office, like never, never fun. You get there, there's the vice principal, and then there's the principal, and then there's the resource officer there, and then there's the superintendent, right? It's like every person, like what did I do? Add some gravity to why you're there. And, and Peter and John, in the minds of these people, these are unschooled, ordinary men. These are men that are supposed to keep their mouths shut when people in power talk to them. And maybe if Peter and John do that, they'll be okay. I think we look at this scene and like it seems kind of ridiculous to us the way Peter, John, Peter and John are being treated. It seems unjust, but right, this is not just an uncommon scene. It's not uncommon then. It's not uncommon now. Last Tuesday, uh, many of you, I'm sure, heard the verdict against the, in the case of Derek Chauvin, uh, who was accused of murdering George Floyd. It was handed down last Tuesday. And as I look at that case, I didn't you know, watch the trial really, but I saw what most of us probably saw. It seemed like a pretty open and shut case to me. Okay, it seemed like Chauvin was clearly guilty of second degree murder, of slowly and painfully, and perhaps most shockingly, indifferently, draining the life out of George Floyd on the pavement in front of Cup Foods last May. Seems like a, seemed like a pretty straightforward case, I think, to most people. But if you notice, at least I noticed, for many African-Americans, they held their breath at this verdict. And many of them broke out into tears when it was announced because so often, in so many cases, unarmed black men and women are killed by police in cases that seem very open and shut, and justice, in fact, is not served. And so to see someone in society who typically holds the power be held accountable for their actions, it seemed to turn the tables for a minute. And it was surprising, I think, in some ways to African-Americans because the justice system and the police system has failed them so many times. And the fact is, without that video evidence, which seemed irrefutable, that just kept showing up in the courtroom, I'm sure to the annoyance of Chauvin, justice would not likely have been served in this case. We probably we would never have heard about this case. Peter and John are standing in the place that so many African-Americans have, have stood and still stand today, in front of the powers that be judging them. In reality, often it's the one judging that's really guilty. And so we have this case where things are kind of being subverted. The tables are being turned. 
they, like in the Chauvin case, they have this irrefutable evidence that's really annoying to the powers. It's this 40-year-old man. And this irrefutable evidence is creating this kind of annoyance for the people in power. And so Peter and John now begin to call the people in the power into account. Again, people in power don't typically like this. Who are these guys? They're unschooled. They're ordinary. They seem so articulate. The powerless begin to judge the powerful. And in this story, Peter can do this. They can turn the tables because they don't stand in the dock alone. Who stands with Peter and John in the dock? It's the Holy Spirit. Read in verse 8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit right before this speech kind of sermon. He then makes this statement. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no one under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So let's, let's just pause here for a second. Let's think about it. This is a powerful statement. And I think it's easy to kind of pull this verse out and kind of put it like, like see this verse outside of the story. And so think about this in your own mind. When you hear this word salvation, where does your mind typically go? If someone comes up to you and says, hey, are you saved? Like, what do they typically mean? What are they talking about? Often, maybe usually, they're, they're talking about some kind of really salvation in the future. Like, and often it's typically spiritual, right? So are you saved? Meaning, like, are you saved spiritually in the future? And that's certainly part of what salvation means. That is a, an essential part of uh, this understanding of salvation. It does refer to future. Remember, like, like hear this in, in the context of this passage. Because who's standing right there? Who's exhibit A in this trial? It's this 40-year-old guy. That's at the center of this story of salvation. Like, and they're saying, you want to know by what power this man has been healed, has been saved? It's the power of Jesus. Because in, in Greek and also in Hebrew, this, this word salvation is it's much more than just spiritual. It's, it's talking about physical salvation and spiritual salvation. It's talking about salvation that happens now and that salvation that happens in the future. If, if someone asks us, I, I think I heard this answer from a Anabaptist Mennonite, but I like this answer. Someone asks us, hey, have you been saved? I think the best response is, I was saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved one day. That's a very Anabaptist answer. I think a good one. I'm kind of biased, but. I was saved, past tense. I'm being saved right now, and I will be saved one day, future tense. See, I think that helps us get our minds better around what does salvation mean? It's not just something in the future. It's something that I'm being transformed by the Holy Spirit right now, and it will come to me one day. Remember, I think one of my favorite stories that illustrates this is little wee little Zacchaeus, which we all, most of us probably heard as a kid. You know, Zacchaeus, so remember Luke, his stories in Luke. Luke is the same author of, of both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and he tells a story about Zacchaeus being up in a tree, and Zacchaeus sees Jesus, and, and Jesus says, hey, I'm going to stay at your house today. And this just rocks Zacchaeus' world. And he's like, I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. I'm going to pay back four times anyone I cheated. And Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house. Hey, not like, hey, Zacchaeus, that is a, that is a good choice. You are going to be really happy one day. Because one day, as Zacchaeus, you are going to be saved. That was such a good choice, Zacchaeus. No, he says, today, Zacchaeus. Today, salvation has come to your house. 
Meaning today, Zacchaeus, you have been freed from something. You have been freed from something that's held you in bondage. You've been rescued. You've been healed. Palmer Becker writes uh, that to be saved means to be rescued for something that has been destroying you or will destroy you. And what Becker says is that when we talk about salvation, we should be able to talk about specifically what we've been saved from, what, we've be, what we're being saved from. So let's take the case of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus could say, man, I, I am saved, I'm being saved from this life that revolves around money, that revolves around dishonesty, that revolves around profiting off the expense of others. That's what I've been saved from and I'm being saved from. This 40-year-old guy, he has a very physical story of salvation. Like, I've been saved from having to sit at the temple gate and beg every day. Man, Jesus has saved me. He's healed me. I can do what my body was, was meant to do. So, so what, what's, what have you been saved from? Like, what are you being saved from right now? When we proclaim the good news about salvation found in the name of Jesus, we should be going off of what Palmer Becker says. We should be able to name what specifically we have been saved from or are being saved from. What, what is God, what is, where is God healing? Where is God at work in your life? Where has God delivered you from? Or I'm sorry, what has God delivered you from? What do you need to be rescued now? See, the problem with just seeing salvation as something that happens in the future is that we can fail to see that things are destroying us right now. Okay? God is not just interested in saving our souls in the future. He's, he's interested in redeeming us, beginning that redemption process right now. So what has God saved you from? If you're struggling to answer that question, I, I get that. Here's an idea. Here's an application. I think people love applications until they realize they would actually have to do it. But that was just a joke. That was not right. Here's an application. All right, here's a, here's a task for you on your Sunday lunch, Okay your spouse or someone close to you, someone you trust, ask them, hey, what do I need to be saved from? What's holding me back from, from the person that God created me to be? You know, I, I, not so that your, your spouse or whoever you've asked can kind of use this opportunity to shame you. That's not at all. But at least in my experience, often your spouse who spends a lot of time with you, they know what's holding you in bondage. They know what's holding you back. They know what's holding you back from the person God created you to be, oftentimes better than you can, than you can see. There's power in the name of Jesus, not just power in the name of Jesus to save you in the future, but to save you now. And it's important for us as followers of Jesus to be able to point to you specifically, what has God saved us from specifically? How is God saving us now? And this, this is a powerful witness. Last week, I pointed out, if you were here, that, that Peter preaches this powerful sermon from a, from a scar, from the school of hard knocks, from, from a rough experience that he learned. And when you begin to tell people your story, when you begin to tell them what you've been saved from, that gives them a chance to see themselves in your story. Okay, so here's the, here's the first point. This, this proclamation of Jesus' resurrection is a saving proclamation. Not just, not just in the future, though that is part of it, but now, second point, it's an exclusive proclamation. Peter says in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So this is a strong claim. Like if there's probably one verse that really 
stands out in this passage, it's probably this one. It's probably not a, a surprising claim. G, Peter is a Jew. He's not making a departure from Judaism here. What, what is Judaism claims that there's not a God among gods. There's one God that God has a name, Yahweh. And this is an exclusive claim for the Jewish people. Okay, Yahweh is not a God among gods. Yahweh is the God, is the God of the universe. This is the central claim of Judaism. If you know uh, from Deuteronomy, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the central claim of Judaism. So yes, Peter's making an exclusive claim, but he's not making a departure from Judaism. Now, in terms of Christianity, there's a couple responses you can have maybe to this passage. Because uh, this is oftentimes, this and a couple passages from the book of John are the most referenced passages to cite exclusive claims of Christianity. And so, so the idea that Jesus is the only one that has the power to save, that he's not uh, one path among many paths to salvation. And some of you might hear that and you are like, of course, I'm absolutely on, on board with that. And some of you are like, that makes me nervous. Like when I hear that language, that makes me nervous. And there's probably some good reason for that. Because probably in your mind, you think back on history, or maybe you're just looking around right now, and you can think of all kinds of examples of religious and political strife and violence that has in fact ensued from an exclusive claim. So someone claims to have a, a, on truth, they have exclusive claim on truth, and it leads to lots of violence. So I just wanna say, I understand some of that hesitation. It can sound a bit arrogant on Peter's part. It can at least sound pretty close-minded, and it, it, certainly not in, in tune with kind of modern ideas of religious pluralism. There's a popular story. I would guess at least some of you have heard it. It's the parable of the blind man and the elephant. So if you know this story, it's, I think it's quite ancient, actually. Um, there's these four blind men, uh, and they discover this elephant. Okay? And they, but they've never encountered an elephant before, so they don't really know what they're they're stumbling upon. So these four blind men come up to this elephant and they start kind of using their hands to try to figure out what they're touching. And, and one man, he grabs the trunk of the elephant and he concludes, yeah, this is a snake. The next guy, he, he's a blind man. He gets a hold of the elephant's leg and he says, okay, yeah, we've, we've stumbled on a tree. Another one grabs the tail. He concludes it's a rope. And the fourth blind man discovers the elephant's side and concludes that, okay, we've actually stumbled on a wall here. So, right, each person is describing an el the elephant, but they're doing it in a different way. And the point that's often made from this story is that that's what religion is like. Okay, so no religion has a corner on truth. In our search for God, each religion is discovering a part of God. So maybe the trunk or the leg or the tail. But none of the religions have the whole picture. Okay, so, so in order, therefore, we need to see these as equally true. And this story is powerful because I think there's some truth to it. Like we are finite creatures. We need to humbly, we need to think about that a lot. We have finite minds. We are in many ways like these blind men grasping around. We're trying to get our minds around an infinite God. And we have a very, very small glimpse of who God actually is, right? We're groping around the dark. We're getting a lot of things wrong. But I think what, what we need to point out, I think what's been pointed out about this story and maybe the problem with it is, for one, all these men are mistaken. 
They have not, in fact, stumbled on a, on a wall or a rope or a tree or a snake. They've stumbled on an elephant. So at best, I think the story illustrates that all religions are false, not true, because every one of these men is getting it wrong. But secondly, I think when somebody tells this story as a way of illustrating a point that no religion has a corner on truth, they're actually making a claim on truth. Because if you tell the story, you're, you're in the story. Where are you? You're the one person that isn't blind. You're the one person that kind of sees from afar these blind men that are reaching. You can say, ah, this is what's really happening. I'm the one that has this special revelation. My point is that Christianity alone is not the only ones making exclusive claims. We are all making exclusive claims. Okay? If, you're, if, you're, if you're the one saying that no one can make exclusive claims, that's an exclusive claim. Okay, so I just, we just need to recognize that. Yes, Christianity makes exclusive claims, but I don't know of any system of belief that does not make exclusive claims. And as Christians, we need to be, we do not have it all figured out. We do not have all the answers. We put our trust in someone we believe does. That's Jesus Christ. Uh, I, uh, this is a quote from Stephen Holmes. He's a Scottish Baptist minister and teacher. He writes this, I am fully convinced and, be and became so in pastoral ministry performing funerals that we cannot and should not speculate on the eternal fate of any particular person. This last line is what I want you to really hear. God will judge, okay, God will judge, and when we see God's judgment, we will be astonished by the depths of God's mercy and by the heights of God's justice. This is a great line. We will be astonished by the depths of God's mercy and the heights of God's justice. I like that quote because we can both boldly and humbly proclaim that Jesus is the only name that saves. We can and should point out that there's saving power in the name of Jesus. And we can do that humbly because, as he's pointing out, we can recognize that we are not the judge. There will be a judgment one day. I'm really glad that none of us is the judge. And we trust that God is somehow able to hold mercy and justice together. I just don't think we can get our minds around. I think one day we'll see it and we'll say, it's astonishing. God will be perfectly merciful and perfectly just. So the proclamation, it's a proclamation of salvation. It's a proclamation now and in the future, and it's an exclusive proclamation. Finally, it's a costly proclamation. As this message of Jesus' resurrection is, is beginning to spread, we're, we're starting to see the cost of evangelism, of proclamation. Peter and John are put in prison, so that's, that's a start. They're then put on trial before these powers, and they're given this order at the end, hey, don't, stop talking about this. Stop talking about this Jesus. And when they're told this, they respond this, this way. Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So at this point, Peter and John are detecting points of conflict between the gospel they are proclaiming and what they're being commanded to do. And they say, hey, look, all we can do is speak about what we've seen and heard. And they'll say this more explicitly in chapter 5 when, when Peter will say with the apostles, we must obey God rather than human beings. Followers of Jesus today, just like back then, we, we need to be thoughtfully watching for places where there's conflict between the gospel, the proclamation of Jesus, and current political and cultural and social 
practices, okay? Where are these points of conflict between the two? As, as Chalmer Foss, he's the one who did the Acts uh, Believer's Church Bible Commentary says, he says, there might be times where we have to disobey the political authorities, okay? When there's a, he says, when there's a conflict between uh, the commands of the Lord and the political authorities, there might be a time to disobey with much heart-searching prayer and counseling, okay? This is not something you rashly do because there's some other text in the Bible that would balance this out, like in Romans 13. And then Paul goes on to say that if, if, if you do, as a follower of Jesus, if you discern there's a point of conflict between, again, the gospel and these practices, then in faithfulness to the Lord, we are called to act boldly in making a protest to the authorities in the tradition of the prophets and apostles. But listen to this. This is, this is I think, what we miss. This is what Foss says. We need to be able to willing to suffer the consequences for that. If we're going to do that, if we're going to take that stand, if we detect prayerfully points of conflict and we take a stand, we need to, ex- we need to do it humbly and we need to accept that there's consequences. I, I go out to Beaver Creek State Park almost every Monday, and I, often I have to drive by this sign that, rem- that tells me that we should make America Christian. It really, it really bothers me every Monday. It's my day off, too. Because this science seems to be saying that, that we, as Christians, need to be using our power to somehow impose our faith on other people or at least marginalize anybody who's not a Christian. I just want to be very clear, that is not the way of Jesus. We are called to boldly proclaim that in Jesus' name salvation is found, but we do not impose that on others because that is a damage to our witness. Notice how, notice, look at Peter and John. Notice how they appeal to the leaders. They, they, they speak truth and they leave the consequences to them. There's a difference in informing others of our faith in Jesus and letting them know that they, we believe they will have a, resp- they have a responsibility to God, their creator, and imposing our faith on them. And I think if I'm, at least what I can see is that that sign comes from a place of fear. When you put that sign up in your yard, you are really scared because you're scared that Christians are losing power and Christians are losing their rights and Christians are losing cultural relevancy in our country. And there's a couple of problems with that. One, when when we take that stance, when we take the stance, we see points of conflict between the gospel and the political authorities, we're much more in the position, we should be much more in the position of Peter and John, okay? They don't have power. See, often when we make that stance, we're acting from a place of power. Peter and John are not acting from a place of power. When we do it, we're often trying to hold on to power. We're, we're much more like the religious leaders in our country today than we are Peter and John. We are scared of losing power. And that spirit of fear does not come from the Lord. In Timothy 1.7, we read, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I just want to be really frank with you. If you are finding yourself consumed with fear about the future of Christianity in America, that is not of God. That is not of God. Look at Peter and John. They are powerless, and yet they're fearless. 
They're boldly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, and the gospel is spreading like wildfire. And they are proclaiming that position, not from a position of power, but of powerlessness. Our duty as followers of Jesus is not to fight tooth and nail that we can desperately hold on to power, that we could stifle anyone who would disagree with us. If we do that, we are like these religious leaders. Our duty as followers of Jesus is to boldly and humbly point to Jesus like Peter and John are doing, and we accept that it may be costly. It is an illusion for us as followers of Jesus to think that we follow a Lord whose path ended up on a cross and think that we will not, it will cost us nothing to follow Jesus. We want to point to Jesus. We want to make sure we're pointing to Jesus. But oftentimes we want to do it as Americans from a safe perch of power where there will come no cost to us. That is not the gospel, folks. And Peter and John are showing us a different way. They can do it because they've been set free from that fear. They, Peter and John saw another guy go to trial, and that guy went in front of the authorities, and that guy got convicted, and that guy got killed, and guess what? That guy rose from the dead. Meaning, what's the worst you can do to us? Peter and John are on trial in front of the authorities. They just saw a guy walk out of the grave. What are they going to do? Kill him? See, here's what I want you to see about this. Peter and John are not just proclaiming the resurrection. They are empowered by the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus has set them free from fear. And when you're set, when you're not in that place of fear, that's when you can point to Jesus. That's when you can boldly and humbly and fearlessly say, that is where salvation is found. Let's pray. God, thank you for the witness of Peter and John so long ago. Their boldness, their humility, their fearlessness, Lord, in pointing to you. Lord, we acknowledge that we are so often not like that. We want to point to you, but we want to point to you from safe places that don't cost us anything. We want to point to you from places of power. And yet, Lord, we see that so often the gospel spreads like wildflower fire when you are pointed to you from places of powerlessness. Give us courage, Lord. Give us courage to not be afraid to say salvation is found in Jesus. And give us courage that we we would, we would not avoid the cost of that proclamation. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.